welcome to the How to HR podcast. I'm your host, Shona, founder and director of Lilac HR, where we help equestrian and country businesses to become brilliant employers. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and let's get cracking. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of How to HR. And this week's episode is listener Q&A part two with my lovely friend Jim. How are you? I'm good. Hello, everybody. Part two. Yes. Very excited to be here. Are you buzzing? I am. as always. Well, I'm just checking that this Coke that I've got here. Oh, it is zero. It's not normal Coke. Otherwise, I will be buzzing and bouncing off the walls. I think I could do with that, to be fair, because I've got like a lukewarm coffee. <laughs> Quite the same. What? <laughs> mm. need to make it iced coffee, I think, to make it a bit more flashy. <laughs> oh, God. So today we're going to answer a few more questions that listeners mm-hmm. have sent in to us. So let's kick off then with this question, which is nice and straightforward, I think. What is a confined space? Okay, so I've actually got a, a official sort of description written down on my notes because we do have show notes. Um, yeah. We don't remember, we can't remember everything. Uh, so a confined space is an unventilated enclosure from which escape is difficult or where there is insufficient oxygen or which may be filled with toxic fumes, e.g. a sewer or grain store or an industrial oven. So basically, uh, an enclosed space is an area covered by three sides, and there's one way in and one way out. So grain store is a perfect example, and um, where if somebody has to go in to do any works uh, or within the grain store, I'd like to think that the grain is empty, but I have heard some horror stories. Um, but it's where somebody has to get into inside of something, and um, there's only one way and one way out. So there's there's different ways this has to be assessed beforehand. Um, uh, there was a I did some confined space training. Not I was leading it, but I was on it a number of years ago. And um, there was a, a horror story about a family of um, engineers. They were it was father, son, uncle, um, brother, brother, etc. It was about five of them. One of them went down this sewer to check some fumes and it literally was one way and one way out and he didn't come he didn't come back so the next one went down to check and he didn't come back either and basically they kept going down and it was just like a, you know it was they kept going to check on the next person and found that as they as soon as you went through the hat as soon as you went through the hole in the ground the fumes hit you um they didn't have sufficient uh, breathing apparatus on they, they weren't connected to ropes. They weren't. They didn't have any radios or communication devices. So as soon as they went in, they then like perished straight away. Um, so stop. Not to start the podcast off on like a really like um, bad note, uh, but um, yeah. So if you're doing, if anybody's doing any work where where is enclosed by three sides and there's one way in, one way out. Um, there needs to be a whole risk assessment done around it. There needs to be training done on it as well. Um, imagine, uh, have you ever been in a situation where you've been somewhere where it's quite, it's quite a tight space and you yeah. start to feel quite anxious? Um, you start to, your breathing starts to increase um, and you, you basically think, shit you know what's going on I'm not liking this because we as human beings are not designed to be like that and I I have a little bit of an issue Uh, I think this is probably from police background where if I'm in a I'm in a place where there's lots of people and it's quite packed I start to get a little bit sort of uneasy about it my old police instincts instincts kick in I start looking at people's hands and you know what they're doing with them and if they've got any concealed stuff so that's why I'll never go to anywhere like Glastonbury or, or any big concerts unless I'm in private box or glamping at Glastonbury um, because I won't be able to. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's one of those, you know, tight conditions together. So, yeah, confined space somewhere that is one way, one way in, one way out, um, closed by three sides and 
you know, there could be the potential that the person could collapse, um, that they could run out of oxygen. Um, there was another incident where uh, two members of staff went into an industrial oven and there was one way in, one way out. And they went in and somebody turned it back on outside by accident. It hadn't been locked off. It hadn't been closed off and game over, basically. So oh, any any oh anybody God. out there listening... If you have, if you work within food manufacturing and industry, if you work in engineering where people have got to go down in the ground, if you haven't got stuff done like that already, you know, even if even if you work within construction and you've got a, a building where you're doing a refurb and there's a knee and the bottom of the chimney is blocked and it's one way in, one way out, you must do you must do a risk assessment. Scar staff going down, they must be trained. They must have sufficient PPE, breathing appar uh, apparatus. You cannot just go, we're just going to go down that hole and deal with that because you might not come back. And if you send somebody else down, they might not come. And it will just be a domino effect. Yeah, like you said, with that, that story going into that sewer, that just seemed bonkers mm. to me that there wasn't the correct, like they didn't have any breathing kit, they didn't have any radios, mm. like no way of communicating, don't cut them down here, it's really dangerous. Mm. That's crazy isn't yeah. it and this is this is why yeah. i think health and safety really does need to be pushed to the top of people's priorities because it mm -hmm. it can be life and death can't it i know some of it feels a bit ott and a bit box checking mm. but oh yeah. my god for the sake of if mm. they'd have just done their risk assessment and made sure they had all the correct kit they they that probably wouldn't have happened mm. they could have avoided like what three people dying in a sewer and this absolutely and this 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 you know PPE is the last um, last thing that you put on a risk assessment in the hierarchy of risk assessing. Um, but what there is so much technology out there that you could send a robot down or you could send a, a, a drone or something like that, if it's a sewer or a probe or, or whatever. There's so many things there. And, and especially with the drones and the probes and the, the robots, etc., they have not only visual sensors, equipment but they also have the facility to say if there is high level of fumes toxic fumes etc but even you know even as simple as if somebody has to go down there make sure they're tied to a rope not because it's not necessarily because if they fall it will help them but also you can you can set up a communication device uh, a system sorry so if you give two tugs and that person doesn't give two tugs back you know that there's something going on so you're not going to send something and you'll pull it back up so there's all sorts of things and that'll all be done within the risk assessment and the training of the staff yeah and i think it's um it's a bit like <laughs> when you were just talking about um technology i was thinking about like it's like an upgrade for when they used to take like the little canary birds in the cages down the mines yeah, the bird yeah. Died, they were like oh shit we've got to go <laughs> absolutely yeah but, absolutely but like beyond beyond the personal element of that of clearly like the, the damage to those individuals and their families looking at that from a business perspective that's expensive for your mm. reputation and for your bank balance because i dread to think mm. what the compensation to those poor families would have been just for the sake of like say having a rope or mm. you know paying out for a little drone or mm. even just a little because you can you can get little bits of kit that just test the air quality and stuff like that can't you yeah. it's not even really expensive. absolutely would have been cheaper than a settlement or a compensation payment. Well, they don't even have to buy them. You can rent this stuff. You can rent equipment. You can you can get there's companies out there that you can rent them for a period of time to use a drone to go into certain places. You know, and, and you don't have to do it. You don't have to get your joystick skills going. You can get somebody who's skilled in that. They might not. They might not necessarily be skilled in what you do. But if you say to them, point and shoot. You know, point point that drone in that direction get it into that hole and we want to see whether you know there's there's things down there which could um endanger somebody's life um if there isn't then we'll send people down and we'll make that assessment to do that but you know you can rent these things and, and the cost of that compared to as you say compensation is is so minimal but in this situation where they went down the sewer they were all different generations of one family so can you imagine that everybody else is like oh like we've just lost four or five people of, of our family because 
nobody bothered to spend a little bit extra. And we use the old saying, we, they don't know what they don't know. And that's, that's hopefully things like this will give people a bit more um, sort of knowledge to think, actually, I need to do something about that. Yeah, because it is, I know it feels like a bit of a financial cost right now to buy the kit or to pay for a health and safety consultant or whatever it is. Mm. But if in the long run you can keep your people safe so that you don't have somebody's death on your hands mm-hmm. and keep your business reputation and just, you know, generally avoid going to court for stuff. Mm. It's a small price to pay, isn't it? Without being too morbid, that really, yeah. really is a small price to pay. And I think people need to, I think people need to take it a bit more seriously because I think like in all the roles I've worked in, everyone hated the health and safety people they hated them Ooh, yeah. health and safety's coming in today to do an audit Ooh. and they really really moan about it but you know for a fact if that person has a bit of metal fall on their head which i have had happen in a mm. factory environment or you know some, something happens to you that injures you you're gonna be the first person moaning about it so yeah absolutely absolutely and i think that sorry carry on no, I was just going to say, if you, if the owner of the company, because uh, the buck stops with the, the owner, the proprietor, the managing director, the CEO, they're the ones that are going to have to stand in the box in a court and say to a magistrate or a judge, oh, we didn't have the money for it. That's not a valid excuse. That is not a valuable, that is not a, not valuable, that is not a, um, uh, an excuse in a court to say we didn't have the money there are always ways of and I, I do get on my soapbox about this because I think it's crap when people give the answer of oh well we can't afford it there are always ways of getting money it's just whether the owner business wants to actually or the owners want to actually go down that route uh, and that. um and especially I know I know it's been difficult but in, in my sort of in the last year or so since since covid hit there have been things like bounce back loans and there have been people are getting reduced business rates or getting their business rates if they rent buildings um or or own buildings etc so there are ways to do that and too many businesses are taking that money and putting it away for a rainy day or hiding under their mattresses well things like this is what you need you know you need to go out and spend that money yeah that's it it's not it's not really optional is it it's it's something that you're responsible for and i'm completely with you we we have this quite a lot in hr around reasonable adjustments so where like a disabled Mm -hmm. employee needs to have an extra piece of equipment Mm. or a ramp put in or you know something to help them remain at work and the employer goes well we can't afford it and it's like that's like you say that's not a reasonable excuse is it because you can afford to pay your staff you can afford to run your company cars you can afford to do lots Mm. and lots of things if you want to Mm -hmm. and the stuff Mm -hmm. that you're like legally obliged to do you still need to pay for that (laughs) it's Mm. still got to be done it is is frustrating and, and and i do see it when you speak to business owners and you say to them about health and safety or hr or thing reasonable adjustment things that need to be put in place they say oh, we can't afford that and then they go outside and whether it's business leased or private and they go outside and get in their hundred thousand pound jag and drive off and you just sit there and think what there's just no there's no urgency we had the conversation yesterday didn't we on whatsapp yeah. you know there's no urgency oh we'll just get put to the back of the pile and you just think oh, oh. Okay, well, we've told you, so um, good luck. (laughs) And and if you want to take that risk in your business, that's completely cool. But like we said a thousand times before on the podcast and off, it just works out more expensive because at the point where the shit hits the fan and you need somebody to come in and fix an accident that's happened or fix Mm. an employment tribunal that you've got coming your way, at that point, you're paying for our time solicitor's time plus the compensation that you're inevitably going to end up paying Mm -hmm. so it just it it's it's illogical to me but i guess everyone's got different priorities don't they and 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 just just on that i won't go on about it too much but we've a perfect example of a company that we now work with we've worked with since the back end of 2020 
for years, for the last two or three years, we've been dancing around with them. They've asked us to quote them to provide health and safety services. We've given them a quote. They've sat on it. They've then gone back six months later and go, oh, we need to deal with that again. Oh, the quotes run out. So we'll ask you to do it again. I'm like, okay, well, you know, the price pretty much stays the same. And then, then they have an accident and all of a sudden they need our help. And one of the first things they sort of mentioned was, well, what we need to do is we need to backdate. No, we don't backdate stuff. We do it from now. However, they then had a, an eight, a health and safety executive intervention and they were um, investigated. Um, there were material breaches, um, but because of the fact that we did a thorough, and I'm not blowing our trumpet here, but the fact we did a thorough investigation, we interviewed, we took statements, we did, um, we spoke to uh, the local authority, they got a caution. So basically that means that they got a caution. If they have any other incidents within a two or three year period, they'll, the directors of the company will be prosecuted. And on this occasion, they weren't. And there were materials, but also we worked with the company. We then became their provider and we worked with them um, on how they could deal with that moving forward and other issues. And there was, the, you know, action was seen to be taken and things were moving on. And because of that, they just got a caution, which is still a worrying thing because further action can be taken, as I just said, but they weren't prosecuted and they didn't go to prison and they weren't fined. They will pay for that intervention. They will pay for the HSE's time or the local authority's time, but nothing further happened. And that is one of our success stories where we've gone in once next and happened. But it does. When it's only, people only react when things happen. And that's yeah. normally how it works. It, it, yeah, and it's, it's the same in HR quite often people say to me oh it's I don't need HR because I don't have any problems and I think well it doesn't mean you won't have any problems yeah. and do you it never happens to me it never happens to me I go okay yeah all right yeah that's, like prevention is better than cure because it's so mm. much easier isn't it to go in and say right let's take all this preventative action and then yeah. any problem that comes up shouldn't technically touch mm -hmm. wood explode into a massive shitstorm it should just stay you yeah. know controllable proactiveness rather than reactiveness yeah that's, that's the dream yeah. it is <laughs> that's the dream <laughs> <laughs> okay so we were talking about tech getting off our soapboxes mm -hmm. for a minute we were talking about technology mm -hmm. and like correct equipment and stuff that you can use in your business so what mm -hmm. about when you have a business that has mechanical equipment Mm -hmm. what do they need to do around that is there any kind of maintenance that needs to happen what are their responsibilities around that sort of stuff okay so if you if an employer uh, if an employee works within a business and the employer provides any equipment for them to use it is up to the um, employer to ensure that the equipment is safe to use it's regularly um, serviced and if there are any um, problems or if it's damaged or it needs to be replaced, then the employer needs to deal with that. They also need to provide training on the equipment as well, because if staff don't know how to use the equipment properly, um, then that's never a, never a positive sign, because if any accidents happen, the first thing that an employee could rightly say is, well, I wasn't trained to do this. Um, and there's no record of it. Um, so, yeah, it's down to the employer. Um, when some of the clients that we work with, they do, because of the nature of their business, they do allow they, they, they do allow their employees to bring their own tools in. However, we try and advise against this because in a, in a business, like an engineering company, for example, they could use power tools. Um, which are of a better quality, are more expensive and will last longer. <clears throat> An employee could bring their own one that they bought for 20 quid from wherever. I won't mention names, B&Q, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, wherever, Amazon. You can buy power tools of Amazon yeah. um, anywhere and it could not. It could be of a not a 
good quality or a lesser quality um, and therefore could have mechanical issues, could break up, etc. What we try to advise our um, clients is that we don't let employees bring in their own electrical equipment. And that doesn't necessarily mean power tools. It could mean things like iPhone chargers or stuff like that or um, bringing in their own kettles and stuff. However, when it comes to things like construction or businesses where there's subcontractors, it all starts going a bit all over the place because the likelihood is if you've got a construction company and then they sub all the work out to subcontractors, they're not necessarily, the, the, the construction company are not necessarily going to be providing equipment. So what we then say to them is, okay, well, then you need to have a regime of checking. So you need to ensure that if you use these subcontractors on a regular basis, then we need to, you need to be checking their equipment or they need to be providing you with records to ensure that um, they're looked after and that they're regularly serviced and they're maintained. And if there has been any damage or, and the repairs have been done, you've got a record of when it went to be repaired, what happened, and then when it was put back into service again. A lot of people sit there and go, bloody records I'm like yeah but a record could save you so much as we talked just now so much um uh pain time money reputation you know stress all this sort of stuff um if you get those things in place um so yeah so to answer your question if it is a uh an organization or a workplace where the employer has to provide the or provides the equipment they need to make sure that they're regularly maintained and serviced and there are written records to prove that excellent so that includes all your things like your power tools like i said electrical equipment does mm -hmm. it include things like forklifts pallet trucks all that kind of stuff yep. as well yeah anything anything that's supplied by the employer um they have a duty to ensure that it's regularly inspected, service maintenance tested, and by a competent person. Now, we have a client of ours who are food industry, and they have in-house engineers because they're in-house engineers who go around and, and uh, deal with all the equipment within the factory, um, and they do all the work on it. Well, they're all qualified, they're skilled, they've got all the paperwork, their um, qualifications, and they make, they hold records, so that's fine. If it has to go outside or somebody from the outside has to come in, then you normally get you should get some form of record of inspection testing. Yeah, and do you know what? Actually, it's really important from a HR perspective as well that you've got those records in place. Um, I actually dealt with a case again, food manufacturing. Funny enough, um, I dealt with a case where an employee ran over one of their colleagues with a forklift because they were reversing Oof. didn't look where they were going so luckily no one was mm. seriously injured but clearly we were ready to haul that guy in for a disciplinary um and it would have been gross misconduct and it mm. potentially could have resulted in him losing his job when we did the investigation it transpired that actually there was a fault on that forklift um mm. that hadn't been rectified it had been raised to management management hadn't done anything about it so it's something mm. to do with the sensors or something like that on the back of the forklift weren't working so even if he had been looking the forklift still wasn't working so mm. that that little fact meant that that guy kept his job he still had a warning because he still didn't quite do what he should have been doing yeah um and he still caused an injury mm -hmm. but he didn't lose his job so it is like those records are so important. Mm, absolutely. As an investigator, I would always, the first thing that I would say is I need to see maintenance records for the equipment, if there's equipment involved, and I need to see training records. And they're like, yeah, but I'll see the, I'll see the, where the accidents happen. Oh, and, and um, if somebody's had an injury, I need to see a um, first aid report. Um, and that's the first things we'll ask for because, we'll scrutinize those first because the thing is if it's the employee and we're obviously there on behalf of the employer if the employee is not had adequate training and there's gaps if that employee was to seek further legal advice again the first thing they'd look at is was that per, well one of the things they look at is was that person trained to do that mm -hmm. if they're not <clears throat> 
balls on the internet because they should have done that. And they can't say, oh, yeah, well, we showed them. It's not written down. Yeah, we showed them. Well, if, it didn't, if it's not written down, it didn't exist. And again, it's records, making sure that those things are written down. Yeah, and yeah, I was I was just gonna say the exact same thing. If it isn't written down, it basically didn't happen. There's there's no proof that it that it happened at that point. Mm. So you just you're up a creek without a paddle at that point, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> a big shitty creek. Big one. <laughs> Shit's creek, in fact. <laughs> shit creek, yeah, big shit creek. Okay, that's that's really really helpful. That um, that's really good. So. What about companies where there is not so much equipment and not so much um, in the way of mechanical equipment and there's more manual mm-hmm. handling? Right, what, okay. What even is manual handling? Well, manual handling is a process of um, moving an item, um, either picking up, picking up, putting down, pushing, pulling. Okay. Um, a lot of people, there's this, thing that people go oh, yeah manual handling back straight knees bent arms straight head forward you know etc yes that is part of it um but it's also manual handling is a is a, a long process of uh, a long training or it's quite a long explanation but actually we do it naturally anyway um as human beings so i go and pick up a box i'll pick it up i will keep my back straight my knees bent you know um but and i'll pick it up in a certain way i'll test it first you know i'll see whether it's too heavy whether it's good grip um whether it's packed to one side and also it's part of looking ahead and seeing where you're going to um and going from one place to another so Sometimes, and I'll be honest, sometimes when I've, I've sort of taught this training, people go, oh, just pick it up and go, don't we? And I said, well, why don't you walk the route that you're going to if you're going in a long route? If you're going from one table next to another, you can see that and you can visually see that. If you're going across the office, you can see that or the off of the workspace, you can see that. If you're going somewhere that you can't see where you're going, you should walk that route and check that there's no obstructions in the way, whether you're carrying, whether you're pushing, whether you're pulling something. Um, if you're doing a team lift, if things are over a certain weight, um, the, the sort of recommended weight per person is about 20 kilograms, 25 kilograms. It's only recommended. It's not, it's nothing um, under law. Um, it, companies will set a weight limit on what people can carry. And we've worked with some companies who have said 20 kilograms is the maximum we'll allow our employees to carry if they're comfortable to do so. Because again, it's all about the individual and then we'll, I'll say you need to walk your route, check that it's clear. Yeah, but if we go from one side to the other, that wastes time. I said, yeah, but if you can imagine actually injuring your back, your back is one of one of the most one of the most sensitive parts of your body. And I can say I can say from experience, I hurt my back, and I ended up in bed unable to walk for about four months. Um, I had lots of medication, and it's not a nice experience. And anybody who wants to talk to me about bad backs, it's you know this is this is proof i'm proof that it can cause a lot of grief um and it was just after my youngest daughter was born so michaela my wife had had a cesarean and three weeks later she was having to deal with me because i couldn't i couldn't drive i couldn't go to work I, I think i lost my daughter was born in the march and i think from sort of middle of middle end of april probably june i don't remember what happened because i was on loads of medication i you know it was awful um so there are lots of things surrounding manual handling but if you know simple things that people can do is just ease back straight knees bent you know making sure you're looking in the direction that you're going in um and you're not bending over from the waist because that then can cause cause problems so yeah manual handling is a whole big subject um, which can be broken down in, into smaller parts. But yeah, just and don't rush it is the biggest thing. Don't pick stuff up and think it's a marathon. It, it, it... Employers yeah. should understand that as well. Yeah, and I think you want to say that it's common sense, don't you? But it isn't necessarily to everybody. No. And I, I completely agree with your point on not rushing. I've seen employees 
picking stuff up and running around mm. and rushing to try and get the job done and then they trip over a bit of strapping on a pallet or mm-hmm. something like that and uh, and then like say mm-hmm. then more time is wasted because then we're dealing with an accident and absolutely got someone who's injured it's just mm-hmm. not not great so with manual handling is there is there a limit on how much people like is there a difference on how much men and women can lift no there is there has been a bit of a myth um about weight limits for men and women there are recommended weight limits on the hse website um and it's somewhere between 20 and 25 kilograms but again that's not um it's not it's not a you can only lift to this weight that's the recommendation so it's it's down to the individual so me I'm six foot two, I'm stocky, you know, I'm, I'm fairly, I I'm think I'm fair, fairly fit, a little bit overweight, you know, it's just the way it is. And I, anybody looking at me, you shouldn't, you know, the old saying, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. You look at somebody and go, oh yeah, he can pick up, you know, steel girders and loads of bags of stuff. And actually I can't, I can only pick up a certain weight that I'm comfortable with. And in manual handling an individual should it's part of the whole assessment so we said before about going from one place to another looking at the load that you're picking up and we use a um is it an, are they call them acronyms is it yeah called tile which is task individual load and environment some people use another one which is called light but i use tile individual load and environment so you look at the task moving one item from one place to another you look at the individual so you could be on doesn't mean that somebody who's uh, older compared to somebody who's younger is able to lift less than they are because it could be the other way around um it does again men and women there's it, men can't men aren't stronger than women um actually Michaela's stronger than I am and she'll probably kick my ass so you know <laughs> um and then it's looking at all things around the individuals as well any previous injuries ability to do it some people I know somebody who's um 29 30 years old and they've got really bad arthritis at that age so but looking at them you wouldn't think that so again it's about the individual you then look at the load as i said how heavy it is how you can pick it up and the environment so if you're going outside and it's hammering it down with rain then you've got to look whether you need to have some help or whether you can use a mechanical item etc so in answer to your question there's a whole process you've got to go through now I break it down when I do training and when I work with clients because we need them, they need to know what those particular areas are. But in our brains, we do it about a million times faster. And we will look at something and go, yeah, bang, yeah, it's raining, box is good, back, yeah, bang. And we do it naturally. And it's so funny when I break it down in training and teach people and, and say, think about how, how would you move that box? Well, just pick it up, bend over from the waist, pick it up, job done. I'm like, right, okay, let's go through this process. And by the end, I would like to say everybody, but not always, nine out of 10 people will say, okay, yep, so I'll bend my back, yeah, I'll do this, I'll think about it a bit more. There will always be one person who goes, no, don't worry about it, pick it up, you know, and you just think, okay, yeah, well, I've I've succeeded with 90% of the people in the room, but you you can't please everybody. But yeah, it is interesting when you break it down, and you see people's minds working and then you see them a few months later. So it was a client or, or that we work with regularly. You see those people later and they, they're quite funny as well. Cause you see them and they go, I'm picking stuff up, keeping the back straight leg. And they do it on purpose, especially guys who are working with in construction to take the piss. And they go, I've got my high vis on, I'm picking it up properly. And I'm like, well, at least by me being there, it's triggered that response. And I bet you, you're standing there taking a piss about it, but I bet you do it and I bet you think about it a bit more. So it is always beneficial to do some form of training um, so that you do remember. And then if you see the trainer again, you can just rip the piss out of them. But, but it's, it works. It works. Yeah, and you're so right about what you say. Like, we all do it completely naturally, don't we? Like, we had some floors fitted in our house a couple of weeks ago and our house is really tiny. So we basically had to, like it was like juggling furniture from one room to another so the fitters could do their job and you do you're like right we need to move this wardrobe out of this room is the way clear of dogs and dog toys and blankets and stuff 
we we know it's going to need me and hubby to move it because he can't do yeah. it himself like you you go through all of that yourself anyway mm-hmm. you just don't realize you're doing it do you mm. as i say because me personally because of my back injury it's not impeded me from doing stuff um since then but it's made me think about it i mean i thought about it a lot before anyway but having that injury it's a re- it's a reactive thing it's made me think and when I see, well, I've just turned 38, but when I see young people, youngsters, you know, slugging stuff up on their shoulders, I'm like, well, think about it, because it may be nice and easy for you now, but when you get a bit older and things start to hurt a bit more, then you won't, you'll wish you hadn't done it that way. And I think back to when I was 16, 17, 18, when I worked in retail and before I got into the health and safety game, I look at some of the things I did and think, oh, you fool, why did you do stuff like that? Because it's probably a long-term thing which caused the injury, was it eight years ago now, of a build-up of, of different things. Probably not good that I used to lug stuff on my shoulders and carry stuff. But but then you fit it, you? you learn, you? Yeah. You fit it, because like, I was the same. I worked for, um, I worked for like a... Um, what do you mean? You're still young. You're, you're, well, you're ten young, ten years young, eight years younger than me. I'm nowhere near as fit as I was when I was eighteen. Christ, I used to work at um, like a country feed store, so we had like loads of agricultural feed and mm-hmm. stuff. So if, the the lightest thing we had was twenty kilo bags of feed, yeah. and our forklift basically never worked, and the um, the delivery guys could never get it in the shop. So we'd get like a thousand bags of 20 kilo 25 kilo feed and we yeah. handball it into the shop and i was i could you know when i was 18 19 i could do 25 kilos on each shoulder mm. and carry it out to a customer's car no problem mm. now i'm like oh god i'm gonna fall over i can't exactly exactly and, and i'm just so glad now that i would if i needed to but like my kids are older and they're bigger and i think the last i only picked the youngest one up and that's very rarely but i just think that didn't really help with it either. And there's lots of different things, you know, that that go towards it. You know, necks, backs, heads, they are the most, um, they're the parts of the body that can be injured the easiest and can cause such long-term injury um, that, yeah, it's, you know, I'm not going to preach, but, you know, those are the areas you've got to look after so it is and your employer and your employer should as well in the workplace because that's they've got a duty to do that so yeah this is it you've you've got to keep your workforce healthy and safe otherwise like they're no good to anyone exactly 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 Mm. right i think it's my turn to ask you some questions okay so getting my my uh my show notes my list out right okay hmm I've, I've got a list here. I'm wondering whether to go down from the bottom upwards or just hit one randomly. No. Uh, here we go. How do I avoid tribunals? Oh, oh, this is meaty. Right. Strap all in there. <laughs> the tribunals are a funny thing because... Up until a couple of years ago, employees had to pay a fee in order to to submit a claim. So that generally meant that it was only really people who were really serious about making a claim who would submit them. They would normally reach the point of making a claim, see the fee, and they would back down. So it was much, much easier to reach um, probably a lower settlement figure with them because you could avoid, you could just avoid the tribunal. And then a couple of years ago, they decided that actually we would abolish those fees to make tribunals more accessible to people who perhaps couldn't afford to pay the fee, because there was the worry that the lower paid spectrum of the employment world were going to be the most likely to be exploited and therefore should have access to the tribunals. So abolishing the fees is a really, really good thing ethically. In practice, what it's done is, A, create a massive backlog of claims because they allowed people to backdate their claims um, so that they didn't have to pay a fee within a particular time frame. And it's also then led to an influx of claims because now the process, if an employee wants to make a claim, is that they have to go to ACAS and 
log an early conciliation case mm -hmm. and ideally they would then enter into conversations with the employer but they don't have to do that they can just say to ACAS I'm logging this I'll see you in two weeks ACAS then issue a certificate that say here's your little bit of paper with your reference number off you pop to tribunal and it's as easy as that so in some respects as you say it's easy to log one but it's not going to be dealt with quickly yeah because of the backlog yeah so although it's much easier for people to submit them now there's a wait time at the moment of about two years to hear a claim <sighs> dependent on how big it is but the, the biggest issue is that people can submit the claim so that the let's go through the tribunal process really quickly because mm -hmm. i think it's worth understanding so in the tribunal process the employee submits the claim mm -hmm. the employer is then notified of the claim and then mm -hmm. has a particular time frame in which to send a response to the court the court then decide whether or not they're going to do a preliminary hearing or if they're going to go straight to a full hearing if they go to a preliminary hearing that's where they kind of assess whether or not the case is all right and whether it will go through to a full hearing it's a bit like a screening process and then you go through to the, the full hearing if, if the court allows it through. So before it's even got to a judge, you've already engaged solicitors. You've put your argument through, the solicitors mm -hmm. have checked it across, you've sent all your evidence off. That's before even a judge has looked at it. So even if that employee has got the most ridiculous, made up, completely imaginary claim, it's still gonna cost you money. That's my yeah. point. Yeah. So the, the absolute best way that you can avoid a tribunal is by following policies and procedures, which I harp on about a lot. But mm. H, the, the HR world is governed by two bodies, and that's the CIPD and ACAS. Mm -hmm. And ACAS outline how HR professionals and how business owners should do their HR. So... You need to follow the ACAS code of conduct and the ACAS um, code of practice, sorry, not code of conduct. You need to follow those practices and those procedures and all of your policies to the letter. Mm -hmm. Because that then means that even if your employee is one of those people that is just going to make a claim anyway, it's probably going to get thrown out because you can evidence, I followed all of these procedures, we've done everything by the book, we've mm -hmm. dotted the I's and crossed the T's, there's no argument here. And it'll probably get thrown out before it gets to, an, to a preliminary hearing. So, yeah, that's the best way that you can avoid them. Mm. Unfortunately, with the way the world is now, I had a case recently, actually, where my employee had done nothing. They had literally done nothing. And the employee raised a claim. The employee was still working for them, but was off sick. The only thing the employer had done was write to this employee and say, we understand that you're off sick. That's not a problem at all. What we'd like to do is meet with you, understand a bit more about your treatment that you're undergoing and see how we can support you. That's the only action my employer, my client took mm. and the employee still raised a tribunal claim. Do you, and I have to be careful about when I say this because I will get on my soapbox about stuff. <laughs> Because I have been an employee, as you have, I've been an employee and now I'm an employer. Um, do you think that it has become, we, do, we live in a blame culture, don't we? So who, it's who can we blame? And do you think that employees, there have been a rise in cases where employees of, of they just do it, they actually do it because there is a problem or there has been an issue or they do it because they've got the ump. I think it's a mixture. I think it's a mixture of things. I think it's a mixture of people are more aware of what they're entitled to now. Mm. So people are more aware when their employers mm. are not doing what they ought to be doing. Um, the internet has both helped and not helped the cause. For mm. that reason, it educates people. But the problem that I see quite a lot with people who who decide that they're going to make a claim is they read something like they read a headline that says yeah. woman awarded £150,000 for an unfair dismissal and they don't read the entire case. 
Mm. They literally just say, I could get 150 grand. I'm going in. They don't seek advice. They don't take the time to assess, right, okay, is there actually a problem or am I just a bit miffed? Because there's lots of things that happen in employment that feel unfair, like Mm. losing your job. That's not a nice thing to happen to you. Being made, whether it's being made redundant or being sacked, it's not a nice feeling and it's not nice for the employer and it feels unfair. But when we talk about unfair dismissal, it's not a case of, it is a case of if it's fair, but the Mm. fairness is decided by whether or not a fair and reasonable and thorough process has been followed and whether the judgment was within a range of reasonable responses. So you wouldn't sack somebody for being late once. That's a bit excessive. But if someone is stealing money from the till and you've got evidence to suggest to support that allegation, you Mm -hmm. followed your process, Mm -hmm. that's that's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I actually spoke in a recent podcast that I was on about using that example. So if you have an employee they're stealing from the till. They've worked for you for three years, no problems before. You walk in, they've got their hand in the till, cash stuffed in their pockets. It's like a cartoon where they've got like yeah. <laughs> coming out of their pockets. There's an employee that's witnessing it and you sack them on the spot. I agree that that's a decision that you would want to make, sacking them. Mm. But if that employee then went to a tribunal, you would probably lose your case because you have not followed a fair and proper process Mm -hmm. and you haven't given that employee the Mm. rights to be represented Mm. the right to appeal so it's an unfair dismissal even though the decision is justified and and we and i get that because from from a health and safety point of view it's similar um if they're not if they're not doing things we spoke earlier on about in one of the questions you asked me if they're being trained and they're being shown and then they're they're it's recorded and they're being shown they make a mistake or something goes wrong and they don't do it properly, they get further training. They then go, they then get reviewed, there's a review and they'll be observed. Um, and if they're in probationary, the probationary will be extended for a bit longer or if they're not, then further training will be given. If they then continue to do it, there's got to be disciplinary. And so many times we spoke to clients and they said, well, what do we do? Well, what? if it goes on you're getting into disciplinary matters because now you're you're doing all the things that you should be doing you're following that proper process and the employee didn't give a shit still carrying on with what they're doing um and therefore further actions have got to be taken and you but you need to record all these conversations you need to write stuff down so that you've got all your evidence rather than just saying you're sacked and when you see things on TV, and that, that annoys me, you see all these programmes on TV, especially in America. I mean, oh, it's America, but they go, you're sacked, get out of here, and they get their coat and they leave. That doesn't really work the same in this country. It can't just be done like that. And too many employers still think that they can go, no, you're sacked. Well, and in actual fact, you, you can't actually do that in America. You have to have a reason. No. You have to have a reason yeah. to sack somebody. You can't just go, you're fired. Um mm. And they love a lawsuit in America. Oh, yeah. You know, although their employment law isn't quite as extensive as ours, it's catching up. It Mm. it is getting there. Um, And, yeah, it's all about your procedures. Mm. Have a procedure in place to start with and then follow it. Because that is the biggest bugbear when an employer Mm. has a process. They've got policy. Your policies and procedures are like your instruction manual. I know people Mm. don't like reading them, but they tell you step by step what needs to happen. If you don't follow that, it's your own fault. Like it's <laughs> see you in the tribunal. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And why why have these things in place if you're not going to be followed? Okay. So leading on to that, one of the other questions, and you might have answered some of it already. Can you open an investigation on someone if they are off sick? Good question. Um, yes, you can. There is nothing that prevents you from doing that. However, you need to think about whether it is a logical b relevant and c is it the right thing to do mm-hmm. so quite often i've seen it all i've seen it happen so many times an employee makes a cock up they ring in sick the very next day hoping that the whole disciplinary thing will just go away mm-hmm. um my advice generally where there's a pending disciplinary issue that we need to deal with and there's an employee that's off sick the best thing you can do is focus on the absence first. 
Mm-hmm. So because you can't you can't frog march frog march the employee into a an investigatory meeting. You can't force people to come to work. Mm-hmm. And if they've got a doctor's note saying they're not fit for work, then you're in a bit of a pickle. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the reason for the absence. If employee makes a cock up on Monday and on Tuesday breaks their leg, it's probably not linked to the disciplinary Mm. and you can probably have a conversation with them and say, look, we've got this issue. We need to look into it. If we make some adjustments and help you out a bit when you're feeling a bit better, can we have a meeting with you? That's perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. If somebody makes a cock up at work on Monday and they go off sick with stress and anxiety the next day, inviting them to a disciplinary meeting is probably going to exacerbate their stress and anxiety mm-hmm. and a doctor would probably not recommend mm. doing that that being said i have managed cases before where we were we were investigating somebody for theft um and she went off sick with anxiety and depression um, because she was really worried about the outcome of this case mm-hmm. um, but i kept in contact with her and just said look we need to carry this on but we can't progress the case without you and we can't reach an outcome without you. So are you happy if we make these adjustments so that you don't have to feel awkward and embarrassed about coming into work? If we make these adjustments for you, are you happy to participate in this process? And she said, yes, because all of her anxiety was about the outcome of the, the, the disciplinary. So mm-hmm. the logic there was like, well, if we just get it over and done with, you can start to feel better sooner. Mm. So it depends on the absence and the nature of the absence and the kind of sequence of events. Um, but there's nothing that prevents you. And if if an employee says, actually, I, I can't come into an investigation meeting or a disciplinary meeting because I'm sick, you can write to their GP and ask for a medical opinion. And you can also ask their with the employee's permission, obviously. Um, mm. And you can also go to an occupational health therapist um, and ask the same question. Is mm-hmm. this person fit to attend a meeting? it all depends on the urgency around it um and again the nature of that of that sickness absence if it's a disciplinary because they were late three times last week it can Mm. probably wait until they're back i I wouldn't i wouldn't be pushing on with that Mm. if it was a really serious gross misconduct time critical kind of investigation then you would have to make a judgment call um but there's no legal nothing legal that prevents you from proceeding with disciplinary action whilst they're off sick it's just that if you go right to the end of the process and imagine a, what a tribunal judge would make of it would yeah. they see that as reasonable that's the, the question to ask yourself is is this reasonable mm-hmm. okay well i think you've answered the question <laughs> Have a go. um one other i've got here as well is if you again connected to what you just spoke about if you employ someone and it becomes clear that they're not suitable after their probationary period where do you stand where their behavior changes sorry when where do you stand when their when their behavior changes but they were fine during probation okay there's two yeah two questions there possibly yeah it's This happens a lot. And this is why I suggest to people that you have a six month probationary period Mm -hmm. written into your contracts, because generally it's difficult for people to keep up a facade um, of behavior different Mm -hmm. to what they're they're actually like um, for six months. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, I have seen people change literally six months and one day into their employment. Um, Into the devil. Literally. The, the key thing is that as soon as you notice behavior or attitude or mm-hmm. conduct issues, you need to have a conversation with that employee. Mm-hmm. Do not leave it for their annual review. Don't mm-hmm. leave it till before you're deciding about Christmas bonuses. Talk about it there and then or book a meeting for the following week, whatever it is. But you need to talk about it and you need to make that person aware that their behavior, conduct, attitude is not mm-hmm. acceptable. And then you need to make some notes because remember, if it isn't written down, it didn't happen. It not exist yet. Make some notes. It doesn't have to be formal. You might even just send an email to yourself so that you've got a date stamp to say, I had this conversation with this person on this day and told them that that terrible attitude around making me a cup of tea is not okay, whatever it might be. In the milking before the sugar. Honestly, like I had a client the other week. Uh, we had a, a girl, she was in probation, so it's a bit different. But she honestly 
her, her she was three days into her new job and her employer asked her to make a cup of tea and she went mm, I don't really make tea I thought for god's sake you're like you're an adult yeah. <laughs> what are you doing but anyway I digress um <laughs> <laughs> so you need to have that informal conversation tell them straight up it's not okay remember as well though that attitude issues can hide something a bit deeper so always ask them if they're okay because it might be that if they're being a bit shirty something might be happening at home mm -hmm. something else might be going on that you're not aware of so always check in with them but just say look i've noticed that you've been acting in this particular way or you rolled your eyes in the meeting or you've been huff like you don't seem yourself what is the matter is there anything i can help you with because this isn't really okay mm. outline that Outline your expectations for improvement, such as, you know, if they turn around and say, yeah, I'm having a bad day, then you have a conversation about that and go, right, mm. how can I help you? If they're just shrugging and acting like a teenager, then you just go, right, I need, I want to see an improvement like by lunchtime, please. Yeah. Um, so you have that initial conversation. If that continues and you continue to have problems, then you follow your disciplinary procedure. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit longer than a probationary procedure, but it is what it is. If that person is not in probation, you can't use your probationary procedures. So you follow your disciplinary procedure as set out in your policy, and mm -hmm. it will probably take them to a verbal warning and then a written warning and then a final written warning and then a dismissal. The idea of the disciplinary procedure is to drive change in behavior. It isn't a punishment. So if you reach the end of that process and the person hasn't improved, there's your answer. Hopefully what would happen is that after the first warning, they'll go, oh shit, they're serious. Mm. I best pull my socks up. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you get halfway through a disciplinary process and they resign because they're fed up with you. Mm. It is what it is. If that person was in probation still, then you could use a slightly accelerated disciplinary procedure to manage that um so it's still informal before you then have a formal conversation but you don't have to go through the verbal written final written mm -hmm. sequence with someone who's in probation is there um just on that then so with probationary periods are there any minimum or maximum recommend i know you said six months you say six months but are there are there any minimum or maximum probationary periods i know they can be extended I don't know if there anything written down anywhere, any law, what they can be, or is it down to the employer, what they want to? Yeah, it's it's basically down to employer discretion. So some people have a probationary period of a week. Some people don't have any. Um, mm -hmm. Some employers have a probationary period of three months. Others have six. It's generally not advised to have a probationary period longer than six months as an initial probationary period. Um, because if you can't work out if that person should be in your business within mm -hmm. six months, then, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening, <laughs> but perhaps, <you're, laughs> yeah, yeah. perhaps you shouldn't really be employing people. <laughs> yeah, you go now. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can work it out in six months. Yeah. Because generally, by, some, by the time someone's been with you for a year, they pretty much mm -hmm. know their job and they're, they're doing it well and they've, and they've fitted in and they understand the business quite well by that point. Um, so it really comes down to the individual choice. I like mm -hmm. a six month probation for the exact reason that we've just spoken about. People can keep their nose clean for three months. Three months is not a long period of time in the grand scheme of things. So it's really easy to have a clean bill of attendance and turn up to work on time. And you do tend to see, I mean, in my employee relations career in corporate, the issues would normally crop up in month five just mm. before the end of probation. That's normally when things started to slip, if they were going to. Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't slip, then generally they'll be fine. Um, but yeah, That's so good. I would, I recommend six for that reason. Just I've, in my experience, mm. it's month five when people start to slip. Okay, that's good. Well, I better speak to um, Keith then because he's had me in probation for 10 years. So <laughs> I don't know how that... Cheeky, yeah, bu you cheeky be, bugger. Yeah, I don't know. Well, hang on, I'm the boss here. Well, I'm in probation. <laughs> No, that's really good. I just because I've been working for other people, I've been in probationary periods. I think I've always always been. I think when I was 19, 18, I think I had my probationary period extended by a month. And that was purely because my manager 
um, well, they told me my manager had two months off work sick so he couldn't fully assess me but now that was a long time now sit there and think maybe it wasn't no I don't know um but but yeah three six month probationary periods but and I think the only thing is I've seen where a few people they've got a little bit scared when they know they're going to be a probationary period because they think well I could get to the end of the period and I could have some sort of dragonian boss who goes actually no, your face just don't fit. So um, we're, we're not going to bother to have you in. And I, I... Well, the, the thing is, is yonks ago, and I'm talking like 1970s, if you were on probation, that was like a trial period and you normally mm. wouldn't get your contract of employment until you'd finished that trial. Mm. That's not the case anymore. No. You are now an employee from day one, whether you've mm. got a probationary period or not, and you have to have your contract from day one, which means that, by the time you get to the end of your probationary period, your manager has to tell you and go through a particular process yeah. if there's a reason why they don't want to continue with your employment. Yeah. Um, so even if you're, you're in probation, even if you're on a, a week's notice, your manager mm-hmm. still has to sit down and tell you why they don't want you to work mm-hmm. there anymore. And ideally, there should be a hint of that because you will have had some informal conversations before that point as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it, it just is what it is you know I think some some managers get a little bit worried about having having people in probation or having to make that judgment call of whether or not they keep that person on um and you mentioned before about extending probationary periods now that should only be in exceptional circumstances such as managers off sick for a couple of months and can't assess you or the employees Mm. off sick for a couple of months so you can't assess them Mm. or they have They've had performance issues and you need to organise an extra training course, which mm-hmm. is going to take place in 12 weeks time. That would be a reasonable reason to extend. If it's just a case of you're not sure, well, you need to get better at making decisions. Like mm. you either need to keep them or make, make a judgment call. And often you just need to trust your gut. Mm. If you're thinking, I don't know if this person is right, I'll extend their probation mm. for another three months. In three months time, you won't be any clearer. They're no. either right or they're not exactly yeah yeah brilliant i think that's helped with a lot of sort of tribunal stuff and stuff to do around you know probationary periods and i think from an hr point of view me definitely uh, you know i we have one employee and i think she had a probationary period i wouldn't i wouldn't i don't get involved in that side because then i might have to sleep on the sofa so uh, (laughs) She would kick your ass in that case. She would <laughs> massively, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, I think that they're all really, really awesome questions, and they're all the kinds of questions that people ask me quite a lot. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's just good, isn't it, just to raise people's awareness about stuff like this and, and all the stuff that we talked about earlier. It is, and sometimes, as we say, you know, when we do these podcasts, there are a lot of nuggets of wisdom that people will get because. They don't know what they don't know. And and I find out things from you about HR stuff and you find out things from me. Uh, and I saw we're doing, obviously we do this on Zoom and then we, Shona puts it into the podcast. Um, but your reaction on your face when I talked about the confined spaces earlier on, if, you know, it, those things do happen. Um, and and it's just, just making people aware, isn't it, of all those, all those questions yeah. and things that could come up. It is, because if you're not like, I've never seen an industrial oven, I dread to think how big that bugger is. But, you know, if you're not exposed mm. to that, you've got no idea. I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm, oh, I mean, I know horrible things happen because I've been the HR manager when people have, like, put their arm in machines and had them mm. crushed and cut mm. their fingers off and stuff. Um, but you don't, um, unless you've been exposed to it, you don't expect it. Absolutely. You don't think Absolutely. about it. Yeah. It's, it's bonkers. Absolutely. It's even, even things like I was reading the other day about um, the process of transporting horses across to Tokyo for the Olympics. And like, I know horses and I know they have mm. to go on an aeroplane to go over there, but I didn't know the extent of like the VIP treatment that these horses get on their journey. And it's it's not until you dig into stuff that you think, oh my God, yeah, there's, there's mm. loads of stuff that goes into this you don't even think about. Mm. I just, I just, I remember that film 
Uh, was it? Is it National Velvet where they had to transport the horses? Oh, I just, I just sit there and I, I know that was a long time ago that film was made, but I just, yeah, I, I do feel sorry for them when they have to be transported. I mean, it must be scary the first time they do mm. it, but they have they have vets on board with them. They have like air conditioned um, transport lorries that take them to their destinations, and they have all these cooling tents and. All mm. this just really awesome stuff that I'm just like, oh, I didn't even know that exactly. existed. Exactly. Like, my poor horse yeah. was just stood out in the rain the other day. <laughs> <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> Wicked. <laughs> oh, no, Jim, that's been epic. I think that's been some um, podcast gold for it our has listeners been. again. It has been. And as always, I've all, I really enjoyed it, as always. Yeah, really good. Me really too. Good podcast. Yeah, it's really, really good fun. Keep the questions coming in, guys, because we love doing this and love answering your questions and things that you want to know. Um, this is part two. So if you haven't heard part one, go check that out and stay tuned for a part three because there is more to do. <laughs> there are, yes. There are more. Amazing. Thanks, Jim. I will see you very soon. Thank you very much. See you again. Bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's episode if you love what you're hearing then be sure to tell us on facebook and instagram at lilac hr ltd